Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. This month marked 100 years since Ireland was split in two, creating Northern Ireland, which is now part of the United Kingdom. Tensions and fighting there have ebbed and flowed and still persist today, often in the form of paramilitary groups. These groups, from both sides, are part of society and daily life there. In the past few weeks, they've also been in the news internationally for their role in the latest riots spurred by Brexit issues. To explain the role of paramilitary groups and the way forward post-Brexit for Northern Ireland, I'm joined today by Kristen Bakke and Kit Rickard. Kristen M. Bakke is a professor of political science and international relations at University College London and an associate professor at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. Focusing on political violence, her research has explored how states respond to opposition movements and critical voices within their borders, the dynamics of violence in self-determination struggles, post-war state-building and wartime legacies, and geopolitical orientations in Russia's near abroad. Kit Rickard is an ESRC-funded doctoral candidate at the Political Science Department, University College London. His research focuses on the role of external states in war, rebel group dynamics, and the legacies of conflict. He's secretary-elect of the Conflict Research Society, which promotes research and knowledge exchange about conflict processes and nonviolent cooperation in the UK and abroad. Kit and Kristen are both part of the Conflict and Change Research Cluster in the Department of Political Science at University College London. Welcome to the podcast, Kit and Kristen. I'm really excited to talk to you both today about a very interesting um, topic that's been in the news and that connects uh, with your research, and that is the rising tensions and lately even riots in Northern Ireland. And um, you've done some extremely interesting research on paramilitary groups there. But first, just to set the stage and orient people, Kristen, can you tell us over the last few weeks and, and now perhaps months, um, why have there been rising tensions? Why now? Yeah, and this is a good question. Much of the origins of the unrest we've seen in Northern Ireland lately is due to discontent in the unionist or loyalist community. So that's, this is predominantly Protestants who want to remain within the UK. And this may perhaps come as a surprise for those who don't regularly follow what goes in Northern Ireland, goes on there and think of the conflict there, the troubles as originating in discontent uh, and the sense of discrimination among the nationalist or Republican um, community, which is predominantly the Catholic community that want to be part of Ireland rather than the UK. And so with respect to these recent riots, uh, observers were quick to point to the Brexit origins of this unrest that emerged in late late March and sort of was at its height in early April. Uh, and that was loyalist discontent with the Irish sea border. And in order to avoid the concern that many in nationalist communities had, namely that Brexit would lead to a hard border on the island of Ireland, um, and this brings up images of border checks from the dark days of the trouble, the solution um, ended up being the Northern Ireland Protocol, and within this protocol, Northern Ireland remains aligned to the European single market and is also part of the UK's internal market. But while this avoided a hard border on the island uh, of Ireland, it does imply checks on goods crossing the Irish Sea. And this has then been a sense of or a source of discontent and a sort of sense of defeat among loyalists. 
So that was sort of the political, uh, one of the key political reasons. And there are other factors at work here too, including loyalist anger and relatively low confidence in the police. Um, this was particularly the case after nationalist Sinn Féin politicians were not prosecuted for breaching COVID-19 regulations when they were attending an IRI funeral a few weeks ago. And there is long-term deprivation and a sense that loyalist communities have been sold out and left, been left behind both by governments in Belfast and in London. And this is a, not a recent concern. This is a longer standing concern. So in, in 2016, I was part of a project called Attitudes for Peace with uh, a colleague at Prio, Helga Binningsbo, and led by Karin Dijsta at the uh, NTN, NTNU, um, in which we did a survey in Northern Ireland. And that survey, which was conducted right around the time of Brexit, showed also then very low confidence in the government in Westminster and in the first minister, which at the time was Arlene Foster. So this, so there's you know, several reasons for these riots that we've seen uh, lately. Now, this low trust in politicians, we saw this very clearly two weeks ago when first minister Arlene Foster of the Democratic Unionist Party was asked to resign by a majority of representatives of her own political party. So she'll step down at the end of May. So that's the, you know, many of these sort of the, the Brexit origins, the low trust in the police, the sense of being left behind uh, reasons for these riots and, and political unrest that we've seen. Now, in both of these events, um, the unrest in the streets and the resignation of Foster, the continued local influence of paramilitary groups um, has been visible. So with respect to the riots, observers quickly pointed to the influence of paramilitaries with criminal motives. And they were saying that these paramilitary groups are egging on the youth on the streets and the police at the same time, they were calling on, quote unquote, those with influence in the community to condemn the violence. And this is a roundabout way of talking about paramilitary groups. And the riots were concentrated in areas that are controlled by loyalist paramilitary groups. And Kit is going to talk more about how do we know which areas are controlled by paramilitary groups. Um, though the extent to which these riots were actually orchestrated by loyalist paramilitary groups is unclear. So the Loyalist Communities Council, which is an umbrella organization that represents the main loyalist paramilitary groups, they claim that their members were not involved. But it is worth noting that the initial rioting only sort of stopped after the loyalist groups called for a period of mourning following the death of the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, so, you know, that shows that, you know, they do have an influence in, in the community. And similarly, after um, these elected DUP representatives uh, put pressure on Arlene Foster to step down, there were newspaper reports um, saying that these representatives had been told by paramilitaries in their constituencies that if they did not push for Foster's resignation, they were not going to be reelected in their communities. So again, that shows that these paramilitaries have an influence uh, or suggests quite strongly that they have an influence uh, within their communities still. And this is something that we've done research on in the last few years, um, the sort of the continued role that paramilitaries have uh, within certain communities in Northern Ireland. Very interesting and, um, and great background to have. And I just have one kind of quick follow-up, which is that on May 7th, um, this uh, piece of information leaked that Boris Johnson wanted to um, 
forgive all or grant amnesty to British soldiers accused of crimes during the Troubles. And I'm just kind of curious, is the timing coincidental or um, how has this affected or may- maybe it hasn't, but has it affected um, these tensions in, Nor- in Northern Ireland lately? Kit, do you want to step in? Here? Yeah, I, I would say this this issue is, is divisive in, in Northern Ireland. So, um, y- yeah, I mean, you might. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think the kind of question makes sense in the sense that, you know, was the time unfortunate? Um, potentially, yeah. Um, but uh, this is this has been going on for like a few years in Northern Ireland. And so it, it the court case, um, which ended uh, two weeks ago, was was kind of exogenous to the rioting, right? It just, that's when it ended. So it's it's a hard one to say. I would say it's a very divisive issue in Northern Ireland. And while loyalist groups were in no way, um, you know, in the Northern Irish conflict, the loyalist groups are, are, are often framed as being kind of pro-state militias. They were not pro-government and they were definitely not pro-army. So in a sense, um, whereas today it's divisive and you would get support for from the loyalist community, that uh, British soldiers shouldn't be uh, uh, put on trial for for crimes committed, especially against you know Catholic uh, civilians uh, or you know potentially not civilians. Um, during the conflict, I don't think it was as clear cut as that. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for satisfying my own curiosity as well um, for a question that you weren't prepared for. So, uh, Kit, let's get into the the actual research. Tell us about about the research that that you two have done. Yeah, cool. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just say how, how we came to do this research. So Kristen was, is part of a, of a project uh, at Prio um, where they collected uh, survey uh, data in Northern Ireland, Guatemala and Nepal. And in a few years ago, presented a paper where she was showing this data. And uh, I saw that some of the questions were about trust in the police. Um, who would you go to if you were faced with a certain crime? And I said, you know, Kristen, have you ever heard of a punishment attack? You know, um, and that's kind of where it all started. Um, of course, she had heard of a punishment attack because when she went to Northern Ireland to do the survey, she was told about it. And that's why those questions were included. But I thought that was the kind of interesting thing. So I'm from the, the Republic of Ireland. I'm from Dublin. And so we know uh, about punishment attacks. And that's something that we've always, so in, in the Republic, you know, they don't happen they're not very, like they're very very rare punishment attacks in, in the Republic Bank. but uh, we know that in Northern Ireland they happen quite a lot so that's kind of where it started um and I was saying I said to Kristen you know you know in areas where there are punishment attacks maybe there's a relationship there yeah like uh, maybe it's related to the conflict it was definitely related uh, in the sense that it's a kind of legacy of the conflict and um, and Kristen said yeah well you have to show that so this is how we kind of uh, started um and ultimately, what we're interested in is really the persistence of those attacks. So in Northern Ireland today, uh, since the end of the conflict in 98, there have been over two and a half thousand punishment attacks, broadly conceived as either a shooting or a beating. Um, and that, for us, we thought was something of a puzzle. Like It seems odd that this is happening in, in, in the Northern Irish context. We might want to say uh, what a punishment attack is, uh, perhaps. Yeah. I was about to say, yeah, it sounds really self-explanatory, but I, I was I was also wondering. It sounds um, very ominous, and I would love a definition. And also, yeah, how did how do you figure out what is a punishment attack versus maybe just an attack? Yeah, that's really good. Um, so a, a a punishment attack or a paramilitary style assault 
or um, um, it has a, a few names like vigilante violence in Northern Ireland, um, is generally uh, an attack uh, or a shooting or a beating uh, by a paramilitary actor or group against perceived criminals in certain communities in Northern Ireland. Um, so I say perceived criminals, these attacks, when you like, what is the difference between a punishment attack and just a normal attack? Or, uh, or like, what, what makes it a punishment attack? Um, similar violence is used, uh, was used at least during the conflict between groups as well. So um, it's important to note that um, this is against perceived uh, offenders or, or of, of crime, yeah, perceived kind of uh, criminal offenders. And it's within... It target, it's within communities. So uh, loyalist groups tend to target uh, perceived criminals in, in loyalist communities and Republican or dissident Republican groups tend to target uh, um, uh, perceived criminals in, in kind of predominantly Catholic Republican communities. Do you want me to say more about what they look like? And uh, so, um, yeah, so generally uh, loyalist communities do beatings and Republican community or Republican groups do uh, shootings. Shootings um, tend to be in the kneecaps or other joints of the body. So um, in Northern Ireland, very often you refer to a, a punishment attack simply as a kneecapping if it's done by a Republican group. Um, and you have kind of different severities of attack. Um, and this is in both kind of systems. So in a Republican uh, community, you might have a kind of dirty kneecapping, which is for when you're shot from the back of the kneecap or a clean kneecapping, which is when you're shot from the front. And the idea there is that if you're shot from the back, you probably never walk properly again. Whereas if you're shot from the front, uh, you might recover because it doesn't kind of blow your kneecap off. Um, yeah, and these, these I, I, I think it's important to say that these are like one uh, scale on a ladder of a hierarchical system of punishment. The top uh, form of punishment being uh, exile or, or death, ultimately. And uh, lower forms of punishment being threats, um, you know, this is why your question is so great. Like, when do you know it's a punishment attack? I think when we were discussing this with, so in our research, we use police statistics. Um, and when we discussed this with the police, they were pretty confident that they were capturing all punishment attacks in Northern Ireland. But they do say that, you know, it's always hard to know <laughs> how many beatings they're capturing because a beating is, is much harder to, to measure. But they're pretty confident. They do have, I mean, I remember the, what they said to us was, you know, um, they have discussions over how much of the iceberg they're actually capturing. But I think um, in terms of like a severe um, uh, punishment, the beatings and the, and the shootings are, are, are the most um, kind of common and, and known of. Uh, in a loyalist community, the, the beatings tend to be similar to the Republican community in the sense that you target the joints of the uh, perceived offender or like what I would call a victim, right? Uh, and um, uh, usually is with iron bars or baseball bats. And, yeah. So these are really, really brutal attacks um, and they're seen uh, and, and they're very much kind of part of an informal kind of an inverted comma justice uh, systems. So our work is on trying to figure out like why do they, where do they come from? How do they persist? Um, uh, uh, and, and what allows them to persist? So, yeah. And maybe just to say how shocking it is that these things, these attacks are existing in a, in a I mean, in Northern Ireland today, we think of this as a 
you know, a relatively successful post-conflict society. You had a peace agreement that was well supported. It's a, you know, it's a strong state. The police underwent reform and these attacks are still persisting. I mean, I was really shocked to see that. And, you know, you would expect that maybe in the immediate aftermath of the conflict, these things are existing. But, you know, 20 years on, more than 20 years on, they're still existing. I think in the last... 10 years, it's close to an average of, what, 100 attacks per year? I mean, that's just shocking, um, I think. Yeah, and and in the um, article that you wrote, or blog post that you wrote um, together for uh, the conversation, you mentioned that there have been campaigns to kind of break the hold or or at least point out the (laughs) clearly negative effects of paramilitary groups with slogans like, paramilitaries don't protect you they control you and then you you write that um this suggests that these practices exist also because people turn to the paramilitaries so i mean maybe this is too speculative but how can this cycle be broken because as you're saying it's a matter of trust trust in the police versus the paramilitary groups and how people can be protected in their own society um were you able to get any insight into that cycle well part of our research was trying to figure out why these attacks are persisting right and so kid can maybe talk a bit more about what we did to show where they're existing why they're existing where um which tells us something about this uh these mechanisms of why people are actually turning to uh these groups yeah so the we we basically we make an argument that the the persistence is is due to um sticky wartime social control uh, and we, we we lean on research from uh, this kind of emerging body of work on uh, wartime order and, war, and rebel governance. Um, and so we contribute this. We think, you know, we know now fairly well why rebel groups seek to provide, you know, public goods during conflict. Um, and w- what we're trying to do is understand what the legacies of that is. And so we make a, uh, I think that our theoretical argument kind of speaks directly to your question because we argue that there are top-down motivations for why groups might want to do this, right? Um, so areas that they control uh, serve to delegitimize or denormalize the state um, and areas and the people within them provide these groups with, you know, safe havens, resources and recruits. And so a lot of those kind of motivations are very similar to the, the motivations of groups during conflict. Um, and then we also argue that there's a socialization mechanism on both the kind of top actor, so the elite groups or the elite within communities, uh, so paramilitary actors we're saying here, um, but also with the community. So from the elite point of view, right, members of these armed groups become accustomed to certain positions of power uh, during the conflict and they just become really, really reluctant to relinquish them. Um, but they also, and this is the kind of nuance, which I think is potentially more the most interesting thing is that you know these paramilitary uh, groups they they're from the community you know they grew up in that community and so they grow up with certain norms and structures of power that they have actually internalized and so it's not just as i don't think it's as simple as you know we do this strategically but also you know they, they actually see it as their role to maintain these systems and as their role to protect these communities um and so that's kind of from that first proposition or um, from that first kind of uh, the top down mechanisms, we argue that 
you know, there should be some kind of pre, uh, geographic persistence in where these uh, systems operated during the conflict and where they operate today. But then the second one, which really touches on your question, is uh, the socialization of civilians. So we argue that like civilians uh, within these communities, they come to rely on informal institutions and they actually consider them to be legitimate. Um, they distrust the state. Uh, the institutions uh, become what uh, Migdal refers to as their strategies of survival. And they also just get used to a certain brand um, of justice, which in this case is, is really kind of brutal. So a big question is, you know, do they, to what extent is there demand and support for, for these informal institutions? And that's uh, kind of a core part of our, our, our research. And it's also worth saying that when these institutions emerged during the conflict, it was a demand from communities. Because in 1969, when the army came into Northern Ireland to sort of try to restore order um, within, to restore sectarian uh, or diffuse sectarian tension, the police disappeared from many communities. So when people then had everyday problems, there wasn't the the police wasn't there to turn to, and the army wasn't really going to deal with your antisocial behavior problem in your neighborhood. So people then started turning to paramilitary groups. So that's where the socialization comes in, in the sense that people got used to, over this 30-year-long conflict to, in certain neighborhoods, to turn to paramilitary groups rather than to the formal institutions of, uh, of the state. So it's a long socialization process in certain, um, in certain areas. So one question I guess I still have lingering is you write that um, it's not clear if the riots, latest riots, were orchestrated or erupted spontaneously, but they have been concentrated in areas controlled by loyalist paramilitary groups. And I'm not sure I understand still what would be their motivation for orchestrating this kind of violence. Is it because they want to show people there is a need for their help or what, what would motivate them? I mean, I actually think that, you know, there's, there's potentially two things going on here. One is, and this received a lot of media attention, is that the police in Northern Ireland are cracking down on loyalist activities. And, and this is a way for them to, to show that they actually are still very relevant and, and strong in, in certain communities. And the other is, you know, the loyalist groups <laughs> were established to protect these communities from uh like sectarian violence um, in the same way as the Republican paramilitary groups were set up to protect those communities from sectarian violence and state violence. Um, and so they've always, throughout the conflict, loyalist groups have always been um, working to defend <laughs> the interests of uh, the loyalist community. And the, the interests of the loyalist community currently, in, in light of Brexit and in line with what's happening uh, in Northern Ireland, are, are really, it is being undermined. And so I think there's, there's two things going on here. One, you could argue, and a lot of journalists have, um, and this is something that's been written a, a lot, is that, you know, there's predominantly criminal motivation, crim, criminal motivations. But I think um, that ignores, you know, a, a really important role that these groups play, whether or not you agree with it, I mean, is, is beside the point, that they are seen as protecting the, these communities and, and, and many of their actions are kind of framed that way that they are protecting the community, yeah. And that gives them legis- legitimacy. So, I mean, what I, what I always think of is, you know, why is the provisional IRA during the conflict the most powerful uh, rebel group or 
say in the Republican side, it was because of their ability to protect these neighborhoods. So when ethnic rioting breaks out in Northern Ireland, uh, sectarian violence breaks out, you have a huge movement of people <laughs> as these areas become homogenous. Right? You have internally displaced people, you have refugees who flee <laughs> Northern Ireland. Right? I don't think we can emphasize just how large scale movement of people was. And the IRA at the time, was, which has existed you know, for a long time in Ireland, um, was seen as having failed to protect the Catholic community in Northern Ireland. And so the provisional IRA breaks away, takes weapons, and they start protecting that community. And, and they quickly, uh, within you know, two or three years, are, are the dominant uh, group in Northern Ireland due to their uh, ability to protect that community. Um, you know, most notoriously um, uh, at the Battle of St. Matthews right, in Short Strand, which in 1970, uh, I should check these dates, but um, where they protect Short Strand, which is a kind of Catholic, or they seem to protect Short Strand, which is a Catholic enclave within kind of predominantly Protestant East Belfast. And that really is the kind of start of their popularity. So, you know, their popularity during the conflict is their ability to protect. Uh, and, you know, when they, when they orchestrate violence today, I think it is a function of that legitimacy that they have in protecting their communities. I should say our research really isn't about that. I mean, that's just <laughs> my opining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is this, it's important to, and just talking about the the latest riots, that all the, you know, most newspaper reports were focusing on the criminal motives of these paramilitary groups egging on the youth. But as, as Kit is suggesting, look, we shouldn't ignore this, um, um, that there's more to it than that, that these are groups that even though they are, they're violent and they have these brutal punishment systems and they are certainly involved in crime, many of them, um, they do still have a certain social standing in certain communities. And that goes both for loyalist groups and for Republican paramilitary groups. And, you know, they, and that emerged over a 30 year um, long conflict. Mm. So to wrap us up, I'll take us back to the beginning um, and ask you a final question about Brexit. But now, having heard you uh, explain all of this and talk, I think I know the answer to my question already. But my question for you is, uh, is it possible that a unified Ireland is in the cards? Because the majority of Northern Ireland voted against Brexit. Um, and since we, we started with Brexit and how this had fueled some of the latest tensions, I thought it would be an interesting question to ask you. But again, I think you're probably going to say no, <laughs> but Kinnison, maybe you want to elaborate. Well, I can say, you know, a little bit about this. So the, you know, the Brexit campaign brought up images and the prospects of a hard border and the Brexit outcome now with the Irish sea border has done a little bit play into and deepened divisions in Northern Ireland and particularly actually made people on the uh, unionist side very discontent with the current state of affairs. So Brexit really in Northern Ireland was seen through the sort of the lens of this longer standing struggle and the constitutional, you know, what's going to happen with the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. Now, in terms of unification with Ireland, um, so under the Good Friday Agreement, the Northern Ireland secretary must call for a vote if a majority, if it looks like there is a majority within Northern Ireland uh, that wants unification. Now, that condition is currently not met, right? So the, the latest poll show that only 43% of the population in Northern Ireland would want unification with Ireland. 
Now, this can, of course, change, right? It can change due to the impact of Brexit. It can change due to how COVID-19 is being handled, right? Is, you know, the government in, in London seen as, you know, doing a good job there or not. It can also be changed by what's happening in Scotland, uh, if there's going to be a vote for independence there and how that uh, plays out. So that can change. But at the moment, there is no sort of clear, visible majority to call for a unification poll. Uh, or a, a border poll, as it's also called. But in order to be prepared for an eventual poll, and there are no details for if there were to be a poll like this, what would it, you know, how, how would it happen? And I think everyone has been quite shocked by the sorry tale of how the Brexit uh, referendum played out. So one of our UCL colleagues, uh, Alan Rennick, he led a working group of experts to assess how that kind of poll could be conducted. Um, and that was an, a group of 12 experts. And a few highlights from what they said. So they said, or they suggested that the unification cannot take place without referendums, both in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. Um, the votes would not necessarily have to be on the same day, but it would have to be on the same proposal. And if North and South both voted for United Ireland, unification would have to follow. And the threshold for victory would be a simple majority in each uh, jurisdiction. So that's what they were suggesting. A crucial question then concerns, well, when will the Secretary of State decide whether a referendum is required? Because that's when it looks like there is a unification, you know, there's a, if it looks like there's a, you know, majority for unification. So how do you know that, you know, there is a majority for unification? And evidence sources could include election results, opinion polls, qualitative research, a vote in Stormont, seats won at elections, and demographic data. Now, this last one is particularly controversial and not very popular among the unionists because the census that has just been conducted um, is expected to show that the number of Catholics are coming close to an equal or even overtaking the number of Protestants for the first time in Northern Ireland's 100 years of existence. We don't know that yet. I mean, we don't know the census results, but that's... So looking at demographic data is sort of, as an indicator, is seen as uh, controversial. There's also other sort of lesson from this butchered Brexit campaign uh, that, you know, reforms are needed to prevent unfair campaigning if there ever was to be a, a vote, a border poll. Um, and there's all sorts of tricky questions to, to sort out. Uh, and the, and the, this committee, the working group, said that we don't actually, you know, there is no perfect solution in the sense that should you, for example, outline what a united Ireland would look like before or after there is, um, there is a poll. So at the moment, there is, no, there is no clear majority for that. But at least work has begun to suggest, like, if there were to be a poll, you know, what would, what would that process look like? Kit would like to uh, step in here too, I think. I want to extend it and say, okay, like, let's say there is a poll and um, uh, Northern Ireland, the majority vote to join the Republic of Ireland. I think what's really important with the recent riots, and it's very much the motivation of our work from the very start, is to emphasise the fragility of peace in Northern Ireland. And there is a huge debate uh, in the literature that we engage with every day, right, on civil war. Um, like, how many people is required <laughs> to have uh, violence? And what, is, what does conflict escalation look like, right? Um, and I think what is really important with the recent riots is that, one, they demonstrate an ability, uh, well, they show how 
how violence can emerge quite quickly in Northern Ireland. And second, um, they showed up, um, there are still tensions across those communities and it becomes tit for tat very quickly. So when the lo- people kind of saw loyalist communities uh, protesting and no one really start caring a huge amount until they were protesting across um, the peace walls, right? Because that's where people get really scared because that's where uh, escalation is is obvious. So, right, even before you get to the legal, uh, you know, and the popularity of it, I, I would say, um, you know, the fear and what, what we always want to kind of emphasize is that, um, you know, we have good reason to, to be scared of, of, of change to status quo in Northern Ireland because um, it, it's hard to know how many people is required to to get political violence going again, armed struggle going again. But um, the fact that these paramilitary groups have uh, popular support in certain areas, no matter how small, uh, indicates to me that, um, that that's something to be, to be very conscious of and, and fearful of. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for for talking about all these topics and tying it all together. And uh, I realized it's also very timely because this month marked the 100th anniversary of Northern Ireland being created. Um, So, yeah, I'm hoping that that everyone else learned a lot as well from listening to this. And I know that I certainly did. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit PRIO.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauger. Research this week by Simona Cecilo. Music by Martin Denham.